I know that you've already done this a little bit this morning, but I want to ask for your help. And if you will indulge me for just a couple of minutes, if you're not able to do this, that's really okay. But if you are physically able, would you just stand where you are here for a little bit? So go ahead and just stand up right where you are. You don't need to go anywhere, but just stand there. Awesome. Thank you. So here's what I'm going to say. You're going to be standing for a little bit, all right? Like not too long, but more than like five seconds. I just want you to be aware of that. But I want to ask you just to stand there where you are a little bit, and we'll come back to why you're standing here in just a little bit. One of the things that I'm asking you to do this morning is going to relate to some of the practices that we've been walking through throughout this entire series. You might remember if you've been with us, we've been talking about what it means to have specific practices to anchor us in times of wandering. You might remember what some of those practices have been as we've gone throughout the last number of weeks. Each different practice has been related to a different psalm in the Old Testament. So we've talked about the practices of confessing and seeking, the practices of resting and thirsting. And last week I was really grateful for Pastor Rick who reminded us of the practice of giving praise even when circumstances may not be the best. And I'm increasingly struck by the fact that we can offer a very countercultural witness by being able to offer praise even when things aren't the best. And I was really grateful for the way that Pastor Rick laid that out for us last week. As we think about that, this morning, the practice that we're going to be talking about relates to Psalm 110. And here's a little trivia for you about Psalm 110. I don't know if you've heard much of Psalm 110 or if it's ever stuck out much in your mind. It never did much for me, but I was a little bit surprised to learn this. There is no other passage in the Old Testament more quoted in the New Testament than Psalm 110. That was kind of weird to me because, again, I've, I've, I would like to think I'm aware which ones are often repeated. I didn't know that Psalm 110 was repeated that often. In fact, over 20 different times in the New Testament, this psalm is repeated. And as I was learning that, I was like, I'm not even that familiar with Psalm 110. What is in there that's such a big deal? Because it's no lightweights that are offering it. Jesus quotes it. Peter quotes it, the writer of Hebrews quotes it. There's some really heavy hitters who are quoting Psalm 110. And part of me is like, what's the big deal about Psalm 110? And part of what we're going to learn here this morning is this. Psalm 110 begins to lay out for us what it means to bring opposites together in a way we would never otherwise expect. Psalm 110 has the ability to take extremes that we would never otherwise put together and puts them together in a very specific way in the person of Jesus that we would think could not ever happen. And as we're going to walk through that this morning, we're going to understand why that's significant and why that's powerful. And essentially what Psalm 110 is going to do for us is it's going to take these things that we think are absolute opposites or extremes and begin to bring them together in a way that they overlap. Now, if you've been with us a while, you might remember a number, a, a while back, we referred to something called a mandorla. A mandorla is a shape that results from different things overlapping. So those of you that are mathematicians, a Venn diagram where you've got two circles that are overlapping, the space where the overlap actually occurs, that's the mandorla space, that overlapped space where they're literally one over top of the other. In Italian, the word for almond is actually mandorla because that shape, when they begin to overlap, looks kind of like an almond. And this has carried significance throughout history. In Greek culture back in the day, almond was associated with new life, with fertility. 
It was viewed in a positive way that way. Even in our biblical tradition, surprisingly, the almond plays a significant role. If you look in the book of Exodus, there's different times when it's describing the, the coming together of the tabernacle. It references almonds. There's a place in the book of Numbers where it says Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, his rod, his staff began to blossom and produce almonds. Why? Because there's a sacred nature to almonds. So put all of that together. You have this overlapping shape called the mandorla. There's a sacred nature to it. There's a mysterious nature to it. And at the same time, there's a sense of life-givingness about it. So there's something significant when you're taking these, uh, these opposite things and trying to bring them together in a way that reveals a sense of the sacredness, life-givingness, and mystery all at the same time. It represents a both and instead of an either or. And that's significant. And that's part of what Psalm 110 is going to lay out for us. So it says this in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So there's your cue. You can sit now, all right? I can see it on a couple of your faces. You're glad you finally get to sit. Like, how long have we got to stand and do this? Here's what I want you to focus on as you sit down. Now, hopefully it feels good to sit down after standing just a little bit, but I don't want you to think about the fact that it feels good. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about that as you just sat down, you are now more grounded. You're a little bit more stable. There's even a sense of stronger orientation because let's face it, when you're standing up, it's easier to become lightheaded. I've actually done a couple weddings in the past where I'm with the bride and groom, and usually the bride and groom are pretty good, but a lot, I've been there when a groomsman suddenly, because of the heat or whatever, as they're standing there, they're starting to do one of these, and unless we grab them pretty quickly and say, sit down, something good isn't going to happen. Why? Because there's that sense that we need to be seated that help us kind of get our bearings again and get reoriented again. Sometimes in sporting events, you know that if you get dehydrated, what will they do? They'll stop you and they'll say, sit down. Why? Get your bearings. Get recollected. Do that kind of thing. Ironically, sometimes it's the sitting that can help us to stop wandering, which is what we're talking about in this series. Uh, just not too long ago, a cousin of mine, he's just a couple years younger than me, he had, uh, he had been making planes, he's a pilot, and he was flying out near Montana, and he had a layover in Montana, he got a hold of his brother out in that part of the country, and they were going to get together and just go for a run over the course of his layover. His brother, at the last moment, had to suddenly cancel his plans, and my cousin was like, well, that's not a problem, I'm still going to go for a run. So he was at the base, and he took off for a run, and it was really nice when he took off. Like, literally, he was just wearing shorts and a t-shirt kind of thing. The weather was good. He's a few miles away from the base running, and if you know anything about Montana weather, this can happen. Literally, a significant snow squall came up, a, like blizzard-like conditions, a quick whiteout, and it was so intense for while he was out there. He's a couple miles away from base, and he's never been out here before. He literally got disoriented in the weather, in the snow, and got lost. Now remember, he's wearing shorts and a t-shirt. And so the weather is quickly dropping. He hadn't brought water or extra food with him. He hadn't brought extra warm layers of clothes. He's out in the middle where there's no cell phone reception. And he's out there wandering around. And it's starting to get pretty serious because the temperature's dropping. And he can't find his way back. And he can't find anyone and he actually started to get elements of hypothermia. Like, it was getting really, really kind of bad. And finally, as he's running, he came across one of those old phone booth types of places, except I don't think the phone was hooked up. And as he got there, he made a decision to just stop and literally sit down at the phone booth area because he was just exhausted and didn't know what else to do. And thankfully, when he did that, eventually, 
someone else came along, found him, and literally told him, or actually took him, to where he needed to go with other people and get him the clothes and everything else that he needed. Had he not stopped and literally sat down, I doubt very much that he would have crossed paths at least with that person and maybe nobody else, and it could have been much, much worse. But in the sitting down, someone else found him and literally helped him to go where he needed to in order to experience new life to be rejuvenated. And that's a lot of what I'm hoping will happen here this morning, that literally we will sit down and in our sitting, it's not just rest, it's sitting in this overlap, this tension of these overlapping elements of God and Jesus and who he is. And as we sit in that tension and in that overlap, that God will do something new among us to lead us to new life as well. So to understand what's going on in this psalm, one of the ways I want us to be able to do that is to look at how Jesus himself referenced this psalm. Because remember, it's referenced over 20 times in the New Testament. So if we want to get a sense of what's happening here and what's going on, looking at Jesus and the way he's doing that can be particularly helpful. So here's the context. When Jesus is referencing this one, we're going to look at Luke chapter 20. You don't have to turn there right now. I'm just going to reference the story. But it also happens in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew 22. Here's the scenario. Jesus is doing his thing, and as often happens, the religious authorities come against Jesus, and they are seeking to attack him, they are seeking to discredit him. And the way that they're trying to do that is they are peppering him with question after question after question, all to make him look not valid. So Jesus, who do you pay taxes to, Caesar or God? What's the answer? And Jesus, whatever he was going to say, they had a way of pinning him down and making him look foolish. Jesus, who do you pay the taxes to? Hey, Jesus, where do you really get your authority from? Again, designed to discredit him. Hey, Jesus, here's a hypothetical for you. In the afterlife, after the resurrection, let's just say there's a woman who's been married like seven times. In the afterlife, who will be her husband in that scenario? Huh, Jesus? And over and over peppering him. And I picture Jesus at that point kind of standing up, like he's not going to be phased by these religious authorities, and he looks right at him. And he stares him down, and you know what he says in response to all these questions trying to discredit him? He looks at him and he says, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And as soon as he says those words, here's what the religious authorities did. Ah. They were stunned. They didn't know what to do or what to say. Now you and I look at that or I look at that and I'm like, wait, what is so significant in that verse? What did he say that they were stunned? Well, they knew some things that you and I don't. And what they would have understood was this. In the Old Testament, there were different prophecies and predictions about who the savior of the Israelite people would be. They knew a savior was coming, but they thought it was going to be a human savior. Specifically, they thought it was going to be a savior in the lineage, in the descendant of David, who was the king at one point, the greatest king of Israel. They were convinced that's who their savior would come from. In fact, they even came up with some significant names of who their savior would be. They used terms like Christos as anointed one or Messiah, meaning Savior, and they thought that their Messiah, their Savior, would come from the lineage, the descendant of David. Now David is the one who's saying this psalm in verse 110. So picture David saying these words. Picture him saying, the Lord says to my Lord. 
What Jesus did when he quoted this psalm is he literally lifted into the face of those religious authorities their very own scripture and pointed out to them something they did not understand. And here's what they didn't understand. If the descendant who was going to be a savior was a descendant from David, then as a human being, he should have been lower than God, who we call Lord. So if David, if that's the kind of Savior we were going to have, the way it should read is, the Lord says to my son, or says to my descendant. Remember, this is David speaking, and he's praying to God. So he says, God, Lord, you say to my son or my descendant who's going to be our Savior. If it was a human savior, you would think he would say son or descendant. That's not what he says. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. In other words, God, I'm praying to you, you say to my Lord. Not son, Lord. You're saying God, and there's another, another equivalent to you. Somebody who's maybe not just human. Someone who else who might be divine. It should have said my son or descendant. He says Lord. And as soon as Jesus does that, and he points out this is happening in their own scripture, the religious authorities are like, oh yeah, that's right. Why does it say, my Lord? Maybe this Messiah or Savior isn't just a human being. Maybe, maybe there is something more to him. Maybe there is another dimension. Maybe, maybe he is divine. And then, just to make the point even more clear, look what it says next in the verse. It says, sit at my right hand. So you're talking about this Savior to come, and if it's a human being who's going to be the Savior, you would think that human being would be lower than God, so it should have said, sit at my feet, Savior, because you're lower, if you're just human, Savior, you're lower than God, but that's not what it says. It says, sit where? Sit at my right hand. Sit at my equal positioning. And so two times in a row by saying, Lord, you are my Lord, and sit at my right hand, there's a sense of equality to God that this Savior is going to have that blows the minds of the religious authorities. And it's their very own scripture. So in essence, what Jesus is doing and what he's saying is, hey, you religious authorities, you are supposed to be experts on the law. You are supposed to be experts in scripture. I'm lifting up to you your very own scripture that you claim to be an expert on and lifting up and saying, here's the kind of Messiah who's coming, one who's more than human, one who's also divine. And once that starts to sink in for these religious authorities, they're like, oh, they don't know what to say. And what is it then that Jesus is doing in this? He's essentially saying, I am that Savior. The Messiah, the Christos that you've been looking for, I am the Lord's equal. I am the one who sits at the right hand of God. And really then what Jesus is doing in this is he's starting to unpack for us what this Messiah is going to be like because this Messiah is way beyond the bounds of what you and I would expect. This Messiah doesn't fit into our nice, neat categories. This Messiah does not fit into a box that you and I say try often to put him into. And let's be honest, we try very hard to put God in a box all the time. We try very hard to make God fit in our boundaries and our categories. And part of what Jesus is doing here with these religious authorities is saying, I won't be put in a box. I won't fit into your categories. <laughs> you're trying to make you, my agenda your agenda. No, no, no. You're going to conform to my agenda. I am not conforming to yours. And he starts to flip upside down all of their ideas of what the Messiah was about, and it blew them away. 
Because what Jesus is saying is that this Messiah is divine and human. Sit in that, church. Sit in that overlap. Sit in that space. Sacred, holy, mysterious. Sit there, Mandorla. And it left them speechless. And it will leave us speechless too if we sit really in that space. Because what Jesus is saying to us is in my kingdom, in order to be brought up, you first have to be brought low. In my kingdom, first is last. In my kingdom, Jesus says, you gain your life by giving up your life. Sit in that church and see what you discover. See what you find. See what new life emerges. Can we sit in that tension? Where we really start to recognize, God, you are all powerful and divine and holy, but you're human too? Because part of what Jesus is doing here is saying, look, I'm coming and I'll deal with the earthly issues and I'll deal with the political issues, but I'm gonna come and I'm also gonna deal with the spiritual issues and I'm gonna deal with life and death issues and I'm gonna deal with eternal life issues. I'm going to deal with earthly kingdom stuff, but I'm going to deal with heavenly kingdom stuff too. All of it is going to be found in me. Sit in that church and let that start to settle in and see what God does. That's one of the ways that this mandorla is happening. But look what happens next. If you look in Psalm 104, verse uh, 4 of 1010, it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we'll talk about Melchizedek in just a moment. But it says very clear there, verse 4, and remember, we're talking about the Savior. It says, you are a priest forever. Now, here's what's ironic. If you back up to the first three verses of this chapter, we've just heard all these phrases that don't talk about being a priest. They talk about being a king. In fact, if you look very carefully in the first couple of verses, you see phrases like this. I'll make your enemies a footstool for you. That's king language. You hear rule in the midst of your enemies. That's king language. You hear a reference to your troops. That's king language. You hear day of battle. That is king language. So you have king language, king language, king language in reference to the Savior. And now verse 4, and you are a priest. Now again, to you and I, that doesn't sound like a very big deal. But remember, for these people, they would have understood kings represented God to the people, but priests represented people to God. And here's why that's significant. In the Old Testament, the offices of king and priest were kept very separate. You were not supposed to mix the two together because they did opposite things. Kings represented God. They had voices of power, authority, majesty, strength, judgment. Priests were there to make sacrifices for the people, to love them, serve them, walk with them in their woundedness. They were essentially social workers for them to be there and walk with them no matter what they were facing. Two totally opposite categories. And now we're finding in this psalm these opposite categories being brought together, overlapped in the same person, the same Savior. And Jesus is saying, sit in that. And see what that does to your heart. Because Jesus is king. Some of us love the idea of Jesus as king. Some of us love God being all-powerful and significant and holy. 
But we don't like the idea of him being our priest, all up close and personal and intimate in our life. Like, I'd rather keep a distance. And others of us are the opposite. We love intimate Jesus who knows every hair on our head and every issue that we're dealing with and walks with us intimately. But we don't want the majesty of God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The problem is if we focus on the Savior as all king and no priest, we distort him. If we focus on him as all priest and no king, we distort him. And so this Messiah comes and says, I am all king and I am all priest. He says, I demand everything of you and I provide everything for you. I demand your all. I am a holy God. Every sin has to be accounted for. I love you so much that I will account for every sin. I will intercede for you. All mixed together, holy, tender, all at once. I love some of the pictures that we get of Jesus in Scripture. Sometimes we see him being a king. When he's overturning tables in the temple area, he's saying, this is a holy space, and you guys have messed it up, and I'm not going to tolerate it. When he's out there on the boat and he has a wave of his hand or a word of his voice and all the seas calm down, that is God Almighty King. When those Pharisees are approaching Jesus and they think they have him, I picture him just standing up and looking at them steely-eyed. He's not going to flinch in their presence. And he declares this, this verse and declares his kingdom, King Jesus. And at the same time, this is Jesus who walked up to a little girl who was dead. And he reached out and he grabbed her hand. And can't you just picture and hear him saying, get up, honey, it's time to go. And life enters back into her and she gets up and she's okay. Can you imagine Jesus crying in the Garden of Gethsemane? (laughs) Because he doesn't want to have to offer himself on our behalf and yet he does because he loves us so much. In John eleven thirty three, 33, we hear that Jesus' spirit is moved deeply when his good friend Lazarus dies. So often when we hear that, we think of maybe there's a little trickle running down his cheek. It says his spirit was moved deeply. You know what that means? He was probably heaving. You know those times in your life when, you, when your heart is so broken, you're gasping for breath because you're crying so hard and the tears are running down your face and you can't catch your breath and snot's running down your face because it's just so hard. Jesus, priest, cries with us in our woundedness and brokenness. All-powerful, incredibly tender, all at once. I love this phrase that Tim Keller uses. He says, absolute power, but melt in your mouth sweetness all at once. What is that? Mandorla overlap. Sit in that, church. I can't give you a picture uh, humanly of of a perfect picture of what we're talking about here this morning because we're talking about Jesus. He's the only one who was ever perfectly divine and perfectly human. 
But let me try to give you an idea or a concept in my mind of what this Mandorla concept looks a little bit like from a human perspective. A lot of you have never had a chance to meet my dad. Uh, my dad has been a farmer his entire life. From age five, every day, all day, he was on the farm. My dad, pound for pound, is probably the toughest individual I know. If you were to see him, he's not like this hulking guy, but I swear he's so strong and anything he puts his mind to by sheer force of will is able to make it happen. On more than one occasion, I've seen my dad, like, you know, say a cow maybe kicked him or, or hurt him by accident or something. In a flash of anger, my dad goes literally pick up an entire cow and move it with one, one fell swoop. I've seen him do that. Or I've seen him, like, on the farm, like he's got this two-ton tractor and something won't fit on. And all of a sudden, I swear, with one arm, he lifts up the two-ton tractor and he slaps the wheel on and fixes it and keeps on going. I'm like, how do you do that? On more than one occasion, my brother and I have been on the receiving end of the power of my dad when he felt like he needed to take a hold of us and remind us that he was father. I mean, we know that power firsthand. And then something really strange happened about 17 years ago, almost 17 years ago exactly now. My dad's first grandchild came into the picture. And this really tough guy, I saw a side I've never seen before. And to make it even more significant, it was a little granddaughter. It had only ever been my brother and I, and so suddenly, I mean, my dad loves all of our children the same. I'm telling you, there is a sweet spot in his heart for Alex. Whatever you want, honey, sure, you know, that's fine. We'll be glad to do that kind of thing. I still remember when Alex was about three or four, we had gone to a fair, and my parents were with us, and it's kind of a long day, and we got to the end of the day, and we were getting ready to leave, and Alex had been wearing a necklace that day, and as we were getting ready to leave, she noticed that somewhere during the day, she had lost her necklace. Now, I was tired. I was grumpy. I was like, and Alex didn't even put up that big a deal, but I was like, Alex, we're going to go. We'll, we'll find you another necklace sometime. We'll get you a new one. My, my dad's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. If she wants her necklace, we should look for the necklace. I'm like, Dad, we got to be He's like, no, 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 it's, not, it's okay. Didn't my dad retrace our entire steps of all the dirt paths we'd been on that day until he found her necklace and brought it to her? Absolute tenderness and sweetness. Incredible strength and power. Jesus, fully divine, fully human. King priest, holy overlap, sit in that church and see what God stirs in your heart. The reason that this can happen and the reason that this can work the way and have our lives change is because look what it says in verse four. You are a priest forever, what? In the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is only referenced here in Genesis and later on in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. You don't find him anywhere else. Who is Melchizedek? If you go back and look in Genesis, he was the guy who came from outside God's people to be a priest and a king to bless Abraham and God's people. So what is this verse telling us? That as God's people, we need something outside of ourselves, outside of our own being, to come in and save us. You and I try so hard to make Jesus flat, one-dimensional, static, and Jesus says, no, 
I am Mandorla. I am overlap. I am all divine and all human. I'm all king and I'm all priest. We so often want to make Jesus this positional figure and make Jesus stand up for these principles that we believe in. I had a professor and I love the way he said it. He said, very often you don't find Jesus standing up for a cause. You see him taking a hike, meaning more often than taking a position, he takes a walk with people in their journey and their wandering and leads them to new life. Sit in that church. Sit in the one who demands all and doesn't apologize for it. And sit in the one who provides all and doesn't apologize for it. Sit and recognize. Sit and respond. Sit and be loved. Sit and love others. Sit and we no longer need to wonder because our hearts have found what they're searching for. Would you join with me in sitting First Church in the in-between, overlapped, holy, majestic, sacred space? that God might move.